Well, uh, welcome again to class. Uh, thank you for persevering and enduring. Are, are you learning? Is this helpful? Or are you just weary and tired? Learning. You're learning? Okay. Okay, well, um, we get to turn a, a bit of a corner today, and uh, so I'm going to pray, and we'll, we'll jump into um, a section on application. Uh, we've been learning how to read, learning how to interpret, and now we're going to get sort of the the last piece of the process, which is what are we supposed to do with all this learning? And and then we'll talk about what we'll do the rest of the course. So let me pray. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful uh, to be gathered around your word again with your people. Um, Thank you for your kindness in your revealing yourself to us. Uh, Thank you for the accessibility and availability of your word, which is a gift to our generation. And uh, we thank you that we can spend a few minutes tonight uh, talking about how we might grow closer to you and to grow to be more like you as we process what we learn in Scripture and we learn to apply it to our lives. So bless our time. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so just real quick, big picture. We've been talking about how to read, how to interpret, and we've reached that point in the book now where we've essentially gone over the process of interpretation and now we're going to look tonight at application. We're going to have two dedicated classes on application, one we're doing tonight, and then what's going to happen, as you've noticed in the textbook, uh, the Grasping God's Word textbook, at that midpoint, the latter half of the book is not a repetition so much of the interpretation process. What it is Um, is a section that deals with how do we think about the different types of books in the Bible, the different genres, so to speak, types of literature, and interpretive hints on how to do that. It's the same interpretive process, but as as you're learning, um, reading Proverbs is going to look a little bit different than reading uh, apocalyptic literature, for example. And so those latter chapters that we're going to focus on between now and And the conclusion of our class in December will deal with the different types of literature. You already got a sampling of that in David Gibson's uh, class a couple weeks ago on reading Old Testament narrative. So uh, we're going to dive into application and then we'll proceed uh, there. So remember, what are we trying to do here in the interpretive journey, right? This is the metaphor that our book uses to try to remember what is it we're trying to do. And um, just by way of review, we want to initially, the sort of step one is to try to understand what did the Bible mean to who. Step one is we're trying to understand what did the, what did the uh, author mean to which audience? His original audience, right? So that's grasping the text in their town. Um, so that's what we think about uh, authorial intent, right? What did the text mean to the biblical audience? As part of that process, we recognize that there are differences between that audience and us today. Uh, Differences of history, of literature, of um, language, of time, of geography. And so part of that interpretive process is recognizing what are those differences and how do we overcome them as we try to figure out what the author meant. Uh, The third principle, of course, is that principalizing bridge which essentially is saying, what is the point of the story? What is the point of the passage? And that point, whatever it is, is what we want to carry over then into our own town in terms of application. Uh, one check we want to do, once we, once we understand the point of our particular passage, is we want to check it against the whole of Scripture 
to make sure that we didn't miss something. We end up out of bounds theologically in some way. That's step four. And then what we're going to focus on tonight is how do we live this out? What's the application? Now, just were most of you here Sunday? Uh, I, I love the metaphor um, that I talked to you about yesterday from Psalm 119. So just, just turn over there if you would. And hopefully, if you, if you heard the message, you get the idea of what Psalm 19 is about, and hopefully that helped you to understand what the book of Psalms is about, so trying to keep big picture in with detail. But I, I love this little metaphor here, uh, Psalm 119, verse 59 and 60. Because I think what the psalmist is going to say here in two verses is in many ways what what we're trying to do when we read the Bible wherever we're reading the Bible. It it points us to what the point is, what the goal is of what we're trying to do. So so look with me there at Psalm 119, uh, 59. I considered my ways and I turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and I did not delay to keep your commandments. So... uh, what does that mean? What, what does our author intend in, in what he's telling us there? That was your cue. Jump right in. Okay, our ways might not be his ways. Okay, Ron? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So as we're reading the Bible and getting to know God and his truth and his perspective... Uh, the things that he thinks are important that he's communicating to us through the Bible, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, before we live it, before we obey it, what do we have to do according to 59? We have to examine our own ways, right? We're, we're, We're saying, okay, God's telling me to think of life like this. Well, how do I think of life? Well, man, I, I think of life this other way. God's saying, this is who I am. And... I'm examining myself saying, well, that's not always how I think about God, right? I mean, th- think, of, think of David's example he gave a couple weeks ago with uh, Naomi. In that first chapter, what does Naomi say? You know, she's lost her husband. She's lost her, uh, the two sons-in-laws, right? or her two sons, excuse me. She's with her daughter-in-laws now. And what does she say about God. He's dealt bitterly with me, right? I went out full, and now I'm back empty. One of those key word pairs, right? And so we're, we're supposed to read that, and, and maybe you say, man, I, I felt like that before. I feel like my life was full, and God did something to take it all away. And then you read the story, and what's the story about? God cares about Naomi, He's providing for Naomi. He's ministering to her family. And he's going to do something beautiful, even historically, redemptively significant in terms of where her family fits in line of David and eventually the Messiah, right? He's doing really incredible things. And of course, you remember the women of the city in chapter 1. Is this Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. And then at the end of the story, what? Look at what God has done in your life, Naomi, is what the women say, right? God has not left you without a redeemer. 
So that, that that's showing us um, how how do we respond when uh, we might feel like God has done something to to take happiness away from us or or whatever. So so again, what what our psalm is saying is. I have to examine my ways. I have to consider how am I thinking about this so that then the Bible is going to make a course correction and then once I examine my ways in light of what the Bible says, then what do I do? I quickly steer my feet back to God's testimonies and I don't delay to do it. Okay, does that make sense? So again, 59, it's just, it, it, it's a great little metaphor that gives us the bigger picture of what we're trying to do when we think about application. Uh, application involves the fact that we have to examine our life, we have to know what does the, the Bible tell us, and then we want to correct, we want to turn the steering wheel of our life, so to speak, from where we are to where God is telling me I ought to be in light of what I'm reading, and I want to do that quickly. Uh, as the the passage would inform us to do okay so that that's just a little bit of an idea where we're going so application um let me ask you this and and i know you have the notes in front of you and you can read what i've written but just just thinking in general what is the goal of what we're trying to do in reading scripture what's the ultimate goal of reading god's revelation yeah yeah, yes to know god um to know his ways, yeah, yeah. Let's can we just do a little bit of a tour on this, because the Bible actually answers this question many, many different times, and I think God puts these moments in His revelation so that we don't forget this is the point of what we're trying to do. So let's just let's just do a little tour here. What are we trying to do in in hearing God's word and in, in reading God's word? What's the goal of all this? Let's start in in. Uh, uh, back in the Old Testament, in the, the first five books of Moses, the Torah, the, the books of the law, uh, you'll remember as we come to Deuteronomy that, that Moses, uh, this is his last plea, this is his last sermon to the nation of Israel. He's going to go up on the mountain, he's going to look over the river, see the promised land, and then he's going to die. And so this is his final charge to that new generation. Remember, most of, most of the parents of the current generation dies and die in the wilderness so this is the new generation he's commissioning them and so he's reminding them he repeats what we think of as the ten commandments in chapter five and you have a lot of repetition in deuteronomy that's where the name comes from right deuteronomy second law it's the second retelling of the law and so in chapter six verse one moses reminds this new generation now this is the commandment the statutes and the judgments which the lord your god has commanded me to teach you why What's the next part of the sentence? That you might do them, right? That you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. So do you hear that? It's obedience and relationship. Obedience and fear. Uh, fear, not, not fear, as we understand the fear of the Lord, as a relationship, a way of relating to God. To keep all His statutes and commandments, there's obedience again, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. 
that it may be well with you, and you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, here's the, that great declaration of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. There's the relationship again, right? So it's, it's knowing God, loving God, fearing God. That's the relationship part. And then what? Obeying God, following God, keeping His law. That those are the, the, the purposes here that we see. And then he says in verse 6, these, command, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, meaning know them, obey them, and then teach them diligently to your children. And he goes on from there. So do you see the purpose? We don't have to guess at the purpose of God instructing us because the, these passages like this tell us. It's to know God better and it's to walk with Him in obedience. You guys know 1 Corinthians 10.31. What's that all about? I'll start it for you. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Does that apply to your Bible reading? Sure it does. So we're, we're doing Bible reading to the glory of God, which means we're doing Bible reading for the purpose that God intended that would bring him glory. We'll look at 2 Timothy in a moment, but uh, you know the passage, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction for training in righteousness why so that the man of god will be adequate adequate right equipped for every good work so that's a passage that speaks to the purpose of why god gives us scripture uh here's one of my favorites that you may not have seen flip all the way over to the other side of your bible to titus chapter one and uh, paul's writing to titus the elder pastor out at the uh island of crete and it's interesting, just just in passing, um, he says something very interesting that tells us something of how the Apostle Paul is thinking about the Word of God and, and his sharing of the Word of God. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God, watch this, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. What does that mean? The knowledge of the truth, which is right, but but what does according to godliness mean? Mm -hmm. Okay, so NIV is helping us a little bit, whereas NASB leaves it a little more rigid. But that that that's a true rendering, I think, of the text. It's what what Paul is saying to t- to Titus is the knowledge of God is supposed to lead to what? Godliness. To godliness, right? It's not just education. It's not just to you know pass on a wanna quiz or something like that, or you know get an A in Sunday school. It's the knowledge God reveals to us in Scripture is supposed to lead to godliness. So if we just kind of sum this up, uh, when I think of if we we summarize what we're hearing here we think of it as this the big picture conclusions the goal of reading scripture is communion and conformity communion means to know god better in relationship conformity means to become more like god in his character uh, as we typically see it in the bible by obeying what he says okay so communion and conformity and let's not forget we fit those within this broader narrative right we, we we've talked about the bible 
the, the broader story of Bible, the, the meta-narrative, the, the broader story as it's sometimes called, is what? It's creation, fall, redemption, and then a final restoration, or sometimes it's called consummation. And so when we think about if that's the broader story, what the Bible's about, we, we see that knowing God and becoming like God by following him fits in, those, those big picture purposes fit into this overall story, don't they? God creates people back in creation, why? To know him and obey him. What happens at the fall? People go their own way, right? They, they, they turn away from God, they, they disobey his instructions. What's the rest of the Bible about? Yeah, being reconciled to God, God's unfolding plan of redemption to bring them back into relationship so that they might do what? Know God and be like him. And then one day, what's God going to do at the conclusion? He's going to restore all things and bring it right back so that his redeemed people are with him forever, being with him, right? Knowing him and being like him forever. So you see how that fits into the, the whole story? So when, when, you, when we're looking at the details, when you're reading, you know, 2 Corinthians or Jonah or whatever, you're, you're thinking about these purposes. How is this helping me to know God better? How is this helping me to follow God, to, to be more like him? And that fitting into this broader message of what the Bible's all about. Okay, does that make sense? So when you get to a genealogy and you go, I don't have a clue what this, is, what this has to do with me and my life. See, that, that's looking at it too small. If you're looking at a genealogy expecting for, you know, three things I can do to enhance my life today, you're not going to find it. But if you look at how that genealogy fits into this broader narrative, you see that that genealogy might play a role in the unfolding of God's redemption, and that's the point. So maybe if, if I'm stuck reading a genealogy in my Bible reading plan, it's not, oh, hey, here's, here's three tips for a better life today, but say, Lord, thank you. That in your kind providence, you ordain these families just as you intended, leading to the Messiah so that we could be reconciled. And, and that this is a record of your faithfulness that I'm reading today. And we just thank him for that. And that, that that's the application. Um, but, but, that, but keeping it in the big picture is very important. Okay, so here's another thing too. And, and uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's actually doing a, a THM thesis on this, this thought. Did you know the Bible is mostly self, self-applying? It's self-applying. Okay, here's my premise, and, and I want you to try this for the rest of the course, and you tell me if I'm wrong. If we're getting our interpretation right, if we've really done the hard work of knowing what did God mean, what did the author intend, what's the point of the story, usually we're not going to get to the end of that and go, now what do I do with this? The reason that we often say, what do we do with this, is we've missed something in our interpretation. And my, my premise, my, my argument, is that if we're doing our Bible reading and interpretation well, application is going to be pretty obvious. Not, maybe not always, but, but most of the time it's going to be pretty obvious. And I want, to, I want to prove that to you tonight with some of our examples, okay? So, so don't take my word for it. But that's why do the hard work of interpretation and you will yield a fruitfulness of application. The text drives application. Okay, so let's, uh, let's look at a couple of explicit passages that tell us about what we need to be looking for 
in application, and then we're going to spend some time looking at some examples. Uh, I, we waved our hands at this a moment ago. Flip over to, to 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. If we get a running start by, by reading the letter of 2 Timothy, we, we recognize um, the relationship that Paul has with Timothy in his mentorship, his discipleship. Um, this was likely his last letter, as you know, um, that, that we're aware of, certainly the last letter that he wrote uh, that's in our Bible. And, and so there's a strain here. There, there's, a, there's an urgency as we read the letter. Uh, chapter 1 and 2 are a call to, um, for Timothy to be faithful to his calling, to complete, uh, to not be the, ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, right? To, to be strong in the grace uh, of God. And we see these metaphors of, you know, um, a race, a soldier, a farmer, right? Just, just persevere, Timothy, stay the course, endure the work of the ministry, suffer hardship. We get language like that. And then um, in chapter 3, uh, we get this reminder from him that in the last days, difficult times will come. And, and Paul warns Timothy of sort of the way things are going to go. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, but you're not going to do that. I encourage you to follow my teaching, my conduct, and again, and then he talks about the blessing that Timothy has had because he had a mom and a grandmother that taught him the scriptures. And so from an early age, he's known that, and now he says to continue in those things because they lead to salvation. That leads us up to our verses. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. Now, I don't think that Paul meant that list to be exhaustive. I don't think he's saying he's, these are the, the, only the four ways the Bible's going to work in your life. I, I think it's, it's illustrative. He's saying here are some of the ways that the Bible is going to work in your life in terms of application. But, but look at some of these. Because as you're reading, this is the work we should expect the Bible to do in our hearts as we're interpreting, as we're coming to understand. It's profitable, right? That means useful or beneficial uh, for teaching. Teaching means instruction, learning, education. So reading our Bibles, interpreting our Bibles, we should be what? What, what, what should we expect to gain as we do that? Knowledge, Knowledge right? The Bible is going to tell you stuff. It's going to tell you how to think. It's going to tell you information. Uh, secondly, uh, reproof, or we might translate that rebuke. An expression of strong disapproval. So what does that mean? Yeah. The Bible's going to get in your kitchen about stuff. You're going to be reading the Bible and go, I don't like this. It's criticizing me. Well, you know what? That's exactly one of the purposes that God has. To, to bring rebuke or to bring uh, reproof, sh- pointing out a wrong that we're misguided in some way. So if, if, you're, if, <laughs> if we're reading our Bible looking to be encouraged all the time, that's the wrong presupposition, isn't it? If we're look, going to the Bible uh, defensive, that's not a good posture either because God is going to use his message to bring reproof or rebuke. Correction, right? Once God rebukes us, He's not just going to say, you're wrong, but what else is he going to say? Here's a better path, right? Here's, here's the correction. Uh, it means useful for improvement, to fix, to strengthen or bolster. Um, here's the better way. And notice in, in Psalm 119, uh, that, those two verses, 59 and 60, I considered my ways, right? I, I, I'm looking at my, 
life in light of the scripture. Oh, I'm hitting the rumble strips. Boom, 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 boom. What do I need to do? Get back on the road. So, so there's something I need to turn away from and something I need to turn back to. That's correction. And then training in righteousness. This is the drip pan. This is, this is the all-encompassing. The Bible is just going to provide, we call it guidance for responsible living. It's equipping. It's instruction. It's training. Uh, the, the Bible is giving us guidance about how to think, how to live, how to respond. So those are just a sampling of as we're, we're doing the hard work of interpretation, we need to expect to learn, to be rebuked, to be corrected, and to be trained. And uh, the result, as it says there, is that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's try another one. Um, if you're in First Timothy, just back up a little bit to First Thessalonians, uh, whereas Second Timothy was probably the last letter that Paul wrote, First Thessalonians was probably the first letter that he wrote. And uh, so you remember, this is the church in its infancy. They're brand new. They've got lots of questions, kind of like James. You know, James, you read James and you go, man, he's got a lot to say. It's like, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And he's just throwing it all out there because there's so much that uh, the church needs in those early days. And uh, so it's a great letter. Uh, Paul commends them uh, early on for their, their testimony of salvation and, and how they turn to God from idols. And, and he has a lot to say of commendation. They're doing well. Uh, he talks a little bit about the uh, the return of the Lord in chapter four, and in chapter five, and uh, but there's this there's this little section at the very end. He, he's just wrapping up, and um, and uh, he goes into this mode of um, just calling them to think about how they're living. And so in chapter five, verse fourteen, he writes, um, "We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly." Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. And all people rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything gets... So he's just boom, 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 boom with, with these short little admonitions to the church in terms of how to handle different relationships. Well, what's interesting about that, if we look at that just that verse uh, in and of itself... This demonstrates, as, as Paul is giving counsel to this church, that different situations require different responses, don't they? Uh, this is one of the verses we often think about in, in discipleship and in counseling other people. If, if someone comes in for, for counseling, or, or maybe they're not counseling, maybe it's your neighbor knocks on the door and their, their mother just died in a car wreck. Um, what does that person need? What's that? encouragement compassion we, we we wouldn't want to rebuke them for their grief would we you know get, get over it you know it's all right you know, there's the there's the need of the moment and ephesians in talking about communication in the body of christ um says says this we speak what is the need of the moment uh, proverbs says like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstance so as we're, we think about, there, there's a right application, there's a right need, uh, a right response for the need. And so what First Thessalonians demonstrates is that you may have three very different situations that come up. Someone with, who's unruly, disorderly, insubordinate. Someone who's faint-hearted, that means discouraged. 
or someone who's weak. It could be limited. It could mean physically ill, depending on the context. Um, so, and, and different admonitions, right? The unruly, they need admonishment, right? The faint-hearted need encouragement. The weak need help. And again, I don't think Paul's being exhaustive here, but the point is different, different situations require different needs. You say, what's the point of that? We're recognizing that application the application of what we're reading in Scripture is designed to minister to different people in different situations. And that's part of the wisdom of knowing, well, what do I do with this passage? What do I, well, part of answering the question, what do I do with this passage, is to say, what's the point that God is trying to address in it? What's the situation that God's trying to address? And you know, if I'm always looking for encouragement in my Bible, I'm going to be very disappointed because the Bible isn't all about encouragement. Okay, so, so there's a couple of passages that give us some examples of application and, and what to look for. Um, pro, would you agree with me that probably the easiest verses to apply in the Bible are direct commands to believers in local churches? Would you agree with me on that? Because that, that's, that's really the closest that we have in terms of the New Testament. Um, one, of your, one of your books says this. I think it's... I think it's Fee and Stewart, that we need to recognize that the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us, isn't it? Meaning, you know, the, the Torah was not written to Grace Bible Church Granbury. Even 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians was not written to Grace Bible Church Granbury. They're not written directly to us, but they are written for our benefit. And so when we think about the, the church letters, those are going to be closer uh, to um, what we're thinking of in terms of application. So these are just a sampling, right? Uh, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now we want to read that in context, right? We want to read that. Who's he talking to? What does he mean in the context of the whole letter? But when you do all that work, you come back and you find out what's he saying? God's will for your life is your sanctification, your, your, your holiness, your growing up in Christ-likeness. And what's one way that we can do that? By abstaining from sexual immorality. And we might want to say, well, what does sexual immorality mean? But you know, we, all, we all basically understand what that means. Or how about this one? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we want to study Ephesians, read the whole letter, see how that fits into the context. And when we do all that, we're going to come back and find out that it means what? It means pretty much what, it's, what, it, what it sounds like it means, right? And so on and so forth. So these are some of the easiest places in Scripture to uh, find application. And so we, we look at those and, and we think that's fairly easy. When there's a direct command to a believer, we still walk through the interpretive journey, but usually the, the gaps to, to get from interpretation to application are pretty pretty narrow. What about this, though? Can we make an application from appropriate deductions from commands and principles? Can we do that too? Okay, I'll give you an example. Go back to this verse. When Paul wrote this command to the Thessalonians in the first century, internet pornography did not exist. Everybody agree with that? Okay, so Paul is not directly writing with internet pornography in mind when he says abstain from sexual morality. But... But the phrase sexual morality means any unlawful sexual practices. 
So looking at a, a 20th, 21st century problem called internet pornography, we would say measuring that against the word of God, we say, well, that's clearly out of bounds in what would be a, a holy pursuit of a sexual relationship. So it fits, right? That's an unlawful sexual practice. So since pornography represents that, this command is appropriately applied as a prohibition to internet pornography. See, that's the deduction. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's not, that's clearly not what he's talking about, but it's the principle. And that's what we're taking the principle and we're, we're crossing the bridge into our town and we're saying this principle, even though Paul didn't have internet pornography in view when he wrote it, that principle still applies to a modern problem. Does that make sense? Uh, we, we can, uh, we can do it like this too. We'll go back to Deuteronomy. We read that a moment ago. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Who's, who's Moses writing to? The Israelites. Are we Israelites? No. But understood in context, understood not just in the context of the Torah, but of the whole Bible including what Ephesians and Colossians say, including what Proverbs says uh, in terms of parenting, we, we recognize there is an application here, right? Parents should teach their children the commands of God. That's the point. And they're to do that all the time. And even though Moses doesn't mention minivans or soccer practice explicitly, we could rightly apply that to those contexts, right? You see, it's not, Moses isn't saying, you know, minivans and soccer practice, but the principle is rightly applied all the time, which would include those modern day situations. Okay, does that make sense? That, those are deductions uh, from what we're talking about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we see we see this principle in the book of Proverbs. That's the whole model there. We see it in Colossians, where Paul commands parents, you know, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, uh, chapter six of Ephesians. Okay. Um, this is one of my uh, my favorite principles here. Uh, turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 34. What's the book of Exodus about? <laughs> it's about the Exodus, Keith. Have you read the whole book of Exodus? It's a fascinating book. I mean, it really is... His, and, and, uh, and, and I know I'm, I'm going to jump on David's soapbox here. Read the whole book. Read it a few times. And uh, there, there's great scenes that we can, you know, review. Our favorite scenes like in the movie. And we'll watch, we want to watch the Death Star blowing up again. Okay, we're going to do that. But, but watch the whole movie. Read the whole book. And it's incredible what, what's going on here. Because one of the things that you see when, when we first come to Exodus is we see God's people growing and multiplying. Right, he, the, the covenant that uh, was made with Abraham is happening, right? The, there's a great nation that's growing, so much so that the Egyptians say what? Ah, we're afraid and we don't want you to take over. And so there's the command given to start kill, killing the Hebrew boys and you know that and God raises up and spares this one boy, Moses. And then you know the story, Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. Uh, he flees, he meets with God, God sends him. You know the story, right? And, and we see God... Um, Faithful to his promise, right? Growing the Israelites, growing this great nation that will be his people. And, uh, and even uh, parts of the narrative where, uh, where the, the text explicitly tells us 
God heard the cry of His people. He saw them in slavery. He saw them there. And because of that covenant, because of that promise, He's going to do something about it. And He sends Moses and Aaron, you know the story, the ten plagues, and then they go off to the mountain, they go to Sinai, they receive His instructions. We think, great, great, this is, you know, and they live happily ever after. Uh, No. What happens when Moses is on the mountain a little bit longer than the people were expecting. The drinking, the partying, yeah, the drinking, the calf making, the all of that, and um, and then something happens. Look at chapter thirty-four. The golden calf happens when? Do you remember? Chapter thirty-two. You know, God, Moses is up there receiving the command of God, and God says, you need to go down the mountain. Your people are out of control. And uh, you know the story, he comes down the mountain, he smashes the Ten Commandments, um, he grinds up the golden calf, throws it in the river, makes the Israelites drink, and then what does he say? Well, even before that, he says, who's on the Lord's side? And like one one of the tribes says we're there, the tribe of Levi. And then what does he say? Take your sword, go kill your brothers. So we recognize it wasn't all of the people of God that were involved in this, but a lot. And and so God gives them an opportunity to repent, and he goes, and the rest are killed. And then and then we see this this situation. Um, of Moses interceding, right? Now, this is really interesting. Um, Moses goes to God and God says, um, you lead the people, I'm not going to the promised land. You lead them. And Moses appeals and says, Lord, these are your people. This is your covenant. You know, if you don't go with us, we're lost. And, and right, and he, and he pleads for mercy. And God says, okay. I will go. I will show mercy. I will continue. And Moses is so excited that God is going to continue the journey. What does he say? Show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will. And and you think Moses probably was like, show me your glory. (gasps) Right? Because no man sees the face of God and lives. So God comes up with this great story. This great plan. He's going to hide Moses in the rock, the cleft of the rock, and God is going to meet with God and show him his glory. He says, I'm going to let all of my goodness pass by in front of you. I'll cover the cleft in the rock with my hand, and at the last minute, I'll remove it, and I'm going to let you see the back of my glory. Yeah, yeah, we'll get that. Which means the most profound thing about God is is not the visual, but the declaration, right? So that leads us to Exodus 34, where Moses gets up early. He brings two brand new stone tablets. God's going to rebuild the Ten Commandments, the tablets. And look at this. We get what is probably my favorite section of Scripture about who is God. Look at this. 
And then the Lord passed by in front of them. This is 34, 6. The Lord passed by in front of them and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet he will no be, by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. Verse 8, Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and to worship. Now, the first time I heard those verses, you know where I heard them that, that I can remember, was in a systematic theology class talking about the character of God. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. God's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow. That's a great list. If I just take that list and look at those attributes of God, I go, oh, this is neat. What's the problem with just lifting out those attributes of God from a couple of verses and say, wow, this is, this is God. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it's, it's not meant to be comprehensive. But what happens if I just parachute into Exodus 34, read those verses, and I've not read the whole book of Exodus? Right, right. And what's the deep meaning? Yeah, you're, what's the deep meaning? What's the contrast? Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. See, the Bible is self-applying, isn't it? You read that in the story, you're going, you did what with a golden calf? You, you broke the stone tablets that God wrote himself with his own finger? and you, What is going on? And then Moses says, I'll go. Or God says, I'll go. I'll be merciful. I'm going to re-give the, the, the stone tablets. And then I want to see you, God. And God says, here's what I want you to see. I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. I keep my covenant, right? For thousands. And the narrative has, the impact of those verses is so much more obvious as to what we're supposed to see if you read the whole story. Now, what's the whole rest of the Old Testament about? That cycle getting repeated. How many times? God goes with His people. The people disobey. Sometimes God enacts judgment, but He always shows mercy. He always is compassionate. He's always forgiving. He gives them another chance. And then we do it all over again. Generation after generation after generation after generation. But you see, if you don't read passages like that within the story, you miss the point. And that's, I think that's part of the problem. When we don't look at verse, when we look at verses outside of their context, we scratch our head and go, well, what's the application? If you read the whole story, the application is obvious, right? I think it is. So I'm preaching to you a little bit, but um, people are called, we talk about the application of the character of God. People are called to know God and be conformed to the image of Christ. Those are our two big ideas of application. The whole Bible is going to reveal the nature and character of God so that the scriptures serve as a means to know God and be more like him. And often the scripture is going to do specific application of the character of God to the challenges of life. Okay. Exodus 34 is my, my favorite narrative example. Think about Psalm 23. We all love Psalm 23. Um, what do we learn about the character of God in Psalm 23 in the context of application? Like, like what's the context that helps us to see the, the, the purpose of that? If we just say, the Lord is my shepherd, we say, that's great. But what's Psalm 23 about? 
Yeah, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? There's a context there. Uh, You prepare a table for me in the... Okay, so David isn't on holiday, is he, when he writes that? He's not on a nice vacation. He's finding that God is his shepherd who leads and guides and provides in the context of real affliction and difficulty. See, the Bible's self-applying if, if, if you're interpreting it right. And uh, Psalm 103, uh, do you guys know what Nahum is about? We should do Nahum sometimes. It's a great book. What's the book of Nahum about? Nahum is Jonah the sequel. It's Jonah part two. Jonah is about the Ninevites and the most pathetic sermon in the Bible that that Jonah eventually preaches and the whole nation repents. And then what happens in the next generation? Yeah, this is this is the next generation that falls back into their sin, back into their idolatry, back into their pagan practices. And what happens in Nahum is God says to the Israelites, I'm going to intervene to save you from the Ninevites. And then he says to the Ninevites, look out, because I'm coming after you. And what's interesting is right at the very beginning, oh, we got to turn there. I'm sorry. I just, I could tell you the whole thing, but it's better to look at it. Look at Nahum. Uh, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, right? Okay. Thank you to my third grade teacher that made me memorize the books of the Bible. Look at this. Chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of... Okay. This is primarily written to Nineveh as a judgment, although it benefits the Israelites because the destruction of Nineveh is going to mean the the uh the saving of uh the israelites the book of the vision of nahum the elkishite look at this a jealous and avenging god is the lord the lord is avenging and wrathful the lord takes vengeance on his enemies and he reserves wrath for his enemies wow that's the way to start a book off isn't it If you look at it in Hebrew, it's even stronger. It says Yahweh is avenging, Yahweh is avenging, Yahweh is avenging. And the English kind of masks the threefold repetition, which we know is significant, right? We say, oh my goodness, why is God coming in his wrath and judgment? What what has happened? And um, and we realize, understanding the, the purpose of the book with the Ninevites, exactly what's happened, right? God's coming on his enemies. Uh, look at this, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now listen to this. It's a great, really a shocking metaphor. In a whirlwind and the storm is his way. The clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel, which were two geographic areas that were known for their lushness and their flourishing. He dries them up. They wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. And the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. 
the world and all the inhabitants in it? Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. You do not want to be on the wrong side, on the enemy side, when God comes as the commander in chief of his great army, do you? So that that incredibly graphic description of God coming in his wrath and judgment. God's like a storm. He's like an approaching whirlwind, a tornado, right? These these weather metaphors that are often used uh, in the book of Job as well for reminders of God's power and wrath. He says, you don't want you don't want to be there. If you're rejecting God and turning away from him. God had given them opportunity to repent. They've repented, but they've come back to their sin. And now God's coming in judgment. Now, watch this. Verse 7. The Lord is... What's the next word? Wow. How often do we wonder, what is this goodness of God? What is, God doesn't seem good to me, right? We often, sometimes, you know, God does things, we go, that doesn't seem good. So, do you see how this defines for us what good means? If we read it in context. Now keep reading. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. What does that mean? Picture a tornado coming down the alley of Hood County. That's God's wrath coming in judgment, metaphorically speaking. And verse 7 says, but the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in that day. And how blessed are those who take refuge in him. So God is the storm coming in his wrath and his judgment, but he's also the storm shelter (laughs) to save you from his own wrath. That's God's goodness. He's good and he hates sin and he hates evil and he'll punishment, but he's also good in the sense that he offers a plan to be rescued from that. Does that you see that? Isn't that beautiful? And uh, I'll confess to you, one of the first times I paid attention to Nahum was sitting at an In-N-Out burger and noticing the Bible verse, Nahum 1.7 on the bottom of the cup. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. How blessed are, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Oh, that's a great verse. But it had no context. And I, I, you say, well, yeah, I can tweet that. But do you see the difference when you put it in the story? The Bible is self-applying. If you look at it, in, if you do your interpretive work, right? Okay, I'm, I'm getting wound up up here. But you, but you get the idea. That that's, that's what we need to do. Do the interpretive work, even regarding the character of God, and you see the application. Uh, there's some great sections there in your books um, on narrative. Uh, David already talked about that, and, and uh, David's going to come back here in a week or two and talk about um, the gospel and Acts, the New Testament narratives as well. So, Okay, um, here's another way that we apply Scripture. And this is, I would say this is a secondary way, but it is a biblical way because the Bible tells us uh, in the midst of talking to the Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians, uh, talking about... Um, let me just go there. Um, uh, so again, he, he's in the weeds here of 1 Corinthians. He's responding to some of their questions that the Corinthians had written to them. 
And in chapter 10, he's going to reference an event in the Old Testament uh, with Moses. And, uh, and that leads him to talk more broadly about the nation of Israel and some of the things that they committed. And he gets into talking about idolatry and other things. But uh, in the midst of talking, looking backward, talking about the Israelites, he says in chapter 10, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then he actually quotes uh, from the verse back in uh, Exodus, right? Um, and stood up. Uh, uh, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, meaning there was um, ungodly immorality going on surrounding the uh, the situation there. Now, uh, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Not, nor let us try the Lord. So what's he doing? He's saying, thinking about our history, the, the history of the Israelites, here's the point. Uh, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ages of the earth, the ages, uh, the end of the age have come. So part of what we do looking at some of those examples is to say, you know what, there's some examples there of what not to do. There's some good examples to follow. There's some bad examples to follow. And again, this is really a a secondary application, I think, but nonetheless a legitimate application. But before we jump to the Old Testament and look for heroes and examples, and remember, that's not how we read the Old Testament. We look for the intent of the author. Uh, and as we do that, we'll see that there are some uh, examples worth following and some, some that are not worth following. Be sure, first of all, the Bible actually commends the example you want to follow. If you're trying to make a decision about what it is, whether to sell your house or not, and you and the wife think, oh, let's put out a fleece. Maybe go back and read Judges and read about the account of Gideon and recognize that putting out a fleece is not a good example to follow. God already told him, what was going to happen? Gideon didn't believe him. That's the whole fleece thing. It was a good example of God's patience, exactly. Uh, secondly, evaluate and support your example with didactic portions of Scripture, meaning the portions of the Scripture that are written more directly to tell us how to live. Uh, or we might say, let prescription bolster description. Don't moralize the story. Remember, God is always the hero. Um, and recognize that authentic examples of real faith don't mean perfect examples. Um, uh, David was talking about the contrast between Saul and David, right? And that's, uh, you'd say that's one of the, the most significant character contrasts in Scripture. And that's one of the things that story does, that narrative does. But even though we might look at David's example and say, hey, that, that's a more faithful example than Saul's example, was David's example perfect? Not at all. It looks embarrassingly human, actually, doesn't it? And the Bible is real to give us authentic examples, but not perfect examples, because that's what real faith looks like. Real faith is not perfection. Real faith is an up-and-down progressive sanctification, but nonetheless, that's that's an authentic walk with God. So we recognize those principles there. Uh, Some several examples here that we've looked at, uh, Job and Jonah and Moses and David and Cain and Peter. So we can follow and avoid biblical examples. Here's another thing, uh, and you guys are familiar with this. Um, One of the things the Bible is after as we're gaining the meaning of the text, the point of the text, is that we would renew our minds, change our thinking. Uh, The Bible has said this over and over and over. We, We saw it in the psalm, right? I consider my ways and I turn my feet to your testimonies. The Bible's saying change how you live, change how you think, change what you do. 
And uh, the, the, passages, the passages that you're probably most familiar with that are calls to believers to do this are Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, both in the context of letters written to believers in the church. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new man. And what that means is we have to get really, really specific about how that's going to happen. Now, again, if you're doing interpretation, what happens with application? It should be pretty obvious. Can I show you that? Go back to Ephesians. And uh, again, you know Ephesians well. Um, Paul has unfolded the gospel in the first three chapters. He has outlined what grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone looks like. In chapter 4, verse 1, that's the hinge. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now go live in light of your position, he says, and he starts to talk about application of how you live in the gospel, in the church, in relationships. And in chapter 4, one of the things he's highlighting is the basic building blocks of sanctification. How do we grow and change? And so we we call this sometimes the put-off, renew, put-on process. Uh, But look with me at verse 22. He says, in reference to your former manner of life, Actually, we should back up to 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That sounds like a process. And being a former recovering engineer, I like processes. Give me, a, give me the steps. But we look at that and we say, okay, what does that even look like? How do I do that? Well, we could guess or we could keep reading, right? We, look at the examples. Here's example number one. Lay aside falsehood. That's the put off. Uh, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. That's the put on, right? There's something to stop doing. There's something to start doing. And then there's some... There's something, some way I need to renew my mind. I need to change my thinking in Scripture to help bolster that process. Well, he says here, for we are all members of one another. Why shouldn't we lie to one another? Because we're connected to one another. We're, we're one family. We're one body. And because of that, because I think of you know, one another here as one family, one entity, one group, we don't want to lie. We don't want to... Uh, speak falsehood, right? And, and then he talks about, um, you know, let no one, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but instead what is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that will give grace to those who hear. The put off is unwholesome speech. The put on is edifying speech. And what does the Bible tell us that renews our thinking? How about this? Your goal in communication is not to get your point across. It's to give grace to the other person. And see, when our thinking changes, my goal is to give grace. That's going to change from looking at people as an opportunity to critique and instead look at people as an opportunity to build up. Okay, and so on and so forth. So if you keep reading, the Bible gives you application. This is what we see in the rest of Ephesians. You put off lying, you put on truthfulness, you put off stealing, you put on honest labor and giving. Unwholesome words are replaced with edifying words, so on and so forth. So you're, you're repenting, you're replacing, and you're repeating And our Bibles help us to think differently 
along the way of trying to apply those things to life. But see, you don't have to guess that the Bible's told us how to do this. Now, is Paul's list exhaustive? Does he say this is the only ways you need to do this? Probably not. He's got other lists. He does have other lists. Uh, there's one of them, right? There's another one. Um, but what he is saying is this, this gives you enough examples to kind of get the point. And we're like, okay, I got it, Paul. And then we can go apply it to other places. But again, the point is if we do our interpretation right, we get application help. <clears throat> Here's some other areas, other Paul's, Paul's list to put off and put on. Let's go a step further. Let's say that you're trying to do this with somebody that is just anxious over their finances. They're, they're just overwhelmed. Uh, you know, COVID's hit and the government checks have stopped and right. And what am I going to do? Let's get really specific just in an application. Maybe you're talking to somebody and they're talking like this. If I lose this job, I will never survive. Well, is that true? Well, maybe they need to renew their minds, right? The, the biblical truth that renews their mind might be a Philippians 4, 9. God will supply all my needs. Now, reading that in context, God doesn't mean you're going to have a six-figure salary and you're going to have a nice 403B or 401K. And, but if we read it in context, what does it say? God's going to supply what we actually need. Not maybe what we want, but what we need. Well, if that's true... And I go back and say, if I lose this job, I'll never survive. Well, God says otherwise, doesn't he? God says he's going to supply my needs. And I can trust that. And therefore, I replace my wrong thinking with this. Even if I lose my job, I know the Lord will provide for me. You see how that works? It doesn't matter. I don't care anymore. I'll just buy this item. Retail therapy. Um Yet I'm still honored, I'm still called to honor God and be a good steward even when things are difficult. I shouldn't go by that. I won't go by that. Why? We make it our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. If you read that in context, Paul says the reason Jesus died was to rescue us from living for our, from ourselves, living for ourselves and instead live for Him. So again, my, my point in showing you this chart is just to say we have to get really, really, really specific with ourselves. Really specific. We don't say, okay, I, I read, I read Ephesians, I need to try to love my wife more, yeehaw, and I'm just going to go try harder. I've got to get down to specific, how am I not loving her like Christ loved the church? How am I not being like Christ? When I walk in the door and I want to hit ESPN and blow right by her and not have time for her and not listen to her, that's not sacrificing for her good like Jesus does for me, right? So specific application is what we're aiming for here. And then finally, uh, one other way we see Scripture sort of self-applying is when we read uh, passages that are designed to give encouragement and hope. Um, and we, we think of Psalms, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. See, you, don't, you, don't, you could fall out of bed and know how to apply that. Because just reading it, you say, okay, I, I get it. And you keep reading the psalm and you get this, this journey of how God meets us in trouble and moves us to a place of encouragement and trust. Um, we'll, we'll look at Philippians another time, but if you look at Philippians in context, uh, what he's saying in chapter 4, verse 8, is that when we learn to think on things that are true rather than dwell on things that are not true, we are going to have encouragement and hope. And uh, things may not seem as bad as they are. Um, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. 
those are just some examples here. So, okay, let's do an example in the time we, I wanted to leave enough time here so that we could, um, we could do a couple of examples here. Do you all want to work on the same example or do you want to work on different examples? Should we should we work on the, yeah let's let's work on the uh, the the same example okay just so we don't run out of time if we have time at the end maybe we'll do another one okay um, do you have your notes on Ruth that David Gibson did okay pull out your notes on Ruth and there's extras over in the stack there if you didn't bring them okay open your Bible to the book of Ruth I'm using this example because I don't want you to say. I don't have enough time to interpret, okay? David walked you through that whole book, gave you plenty of interpretive help, and I would say generous notes to help you in that process. So I want you to pull out those notes. Uh, Karen, they're going to be in that t- the stack right above there, somewhere in there. Okay? I want you to pull out your notes on Ruth, and David... Oh, did you? Okay. Okay, well, if you don't have them, just, just pull up next to somebody that does have them and you can work together. David's not allowed to do this because he's our resident Ruth expert and he's thought about this more than any of us, okay? So I want you to pull out the book of Ruth, open the book of Ruth with your interpretive notes and I want you to take a stab at how do I apply this book? What does this book mean? Uh, Excuse me, uh, you know what the book means. How does it apply to myself? Yes, sir. I do. Um, I don't have it with me. Um, yeah, it's the, the notes he handed out that give sort of some uh, guidance on interpreting. Okay, thank you. Okay, so spend, I want you to take about the next 10 minutes, look over your notes. Again, David went, took, what, 20 or 30 minutes in class to walk you through the book of Ruth, to give you some a guided tour of the narrative features. And I want you to look at it, and I want you to take a stab at application. It could be application for yourself. It could applicate, be application for a, a situation. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's try to do this, okay? Give it a shot, and then we'll share our... Findings in a moment. We'll come back here. Uh, for sake of time, we'll, we'll call it, and then let's, let's see if we can learn from each other, okay? So, first of all, what is the book of Ruth about? What's, what's the point, or what are the main intents of the author in telling us this story? Okay. Bitterness that's changed to blessing. Okay. Good thought. God's faithfulness what? And grace to us. Okay. And expand on that. God's grace and faithfulness to us. How? How do we see that in the story? Yeah. Okay. How, how does, Brianna, how would you, I think you're right on there. How does that compare 
with how Naomi is thinking about her search, her situation in the first part of the book. Is that is that her view of God at that point? That's right. Yeah. Okay. I think she's I think she's on point there. What do you guys think? Okay, what else? What what's what's the we're trying to get what is it about? Let's in, let's make sure we get our interpretation right and then we'll talk about application. So, what's it about? Pay attention to what God is doing, not what you wish you would do. Okay. Now, remember when David was talking about uh Old Testament narrative Remember, dialogue sections are really important, okay? And contrasts, word pairs. So there's a lot of things that happen in that first chapter that are contrasted with things that happen in the last chapter. And in the middle is the story of what God is doing, right? And you're right. I mean, she doesn't see a lot of what God is doing. She sees that God has afflicted her and... You know, she went out full and brought her back empty, right? God, God took all these things away from me. That's her interpretation. And she's not seeing necessarily what God is doing for good in the midst of those things, is she? Okay. So at the beginning, um, that's her interpretation. Then we watch God work and then we get to the end where uh, where the same women in the city that say, is this Naomi? What's wrong with her? What do they say at the end of the story? Blessed is Yahweh, right? Who has not left you without a redeemer today. May his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughters. In, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you then seven sons and has given birth to him. Okay, do you see the contrast? Okay. And, uh, okay, so that's where Naomi started. We get to the end of the story. The women of the city are like, wow, look at what God did. What does Naomi do? We don't know, do we? Why? Because that's not the point. What's the point? Why wouldn't God tell us what Naomi? Uh, what's the point? Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So, so maybe the point of the story is. Not how Naomi responds, but how how the reader of the story ought to respond, right? And I think we have a similar ending with Jonah. We don't know how Jonah responds, right? So, okay, so with, with that overview, what do you do with this in application? And David, you jump in here as the expert if we're just totally missing any. any I know there's a lot that we're skipping over here, but... What do you do with this? To some extent, application, personal application depends a lot on your, your own situation. I know a lot of scripture is more meaningful to me because it, I can find application mm-hmm. in present 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, feel free as you give me your ideas. If, if it links with your story or situation, like you said, that's that's great. So feel free to do that. But what what do you do with a story like this in terms of application? Yeah, Brianna. Okay, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so let me let me see if I understand you correctly. So, what you're saying is maybe Ruth helps us to understand that what God is doing for good in our life, and some of those things are not material, um, is of greater value than maybe some of the material things that we lose. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy that. What, what does the story teach us about God, the main character? Okay. Okay. So what's Naomi's view of God contrasted with the narrator's view of God in the story? Maybe that's the question to ask because that gets to what you're talking about. Naomi's view of God is what? You did this to me, right? I was full and you drained it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. You said, what, what, what did she say again? Um, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me God's against me I was full he took everything away she she's not questioning God's sovereignty and his providence she's questioning his goodness right that's which is I think you mentioned it's the same dilemma as Job at, at the middle section of Job the almighty has afflicted me so her her view of God is God is my enemy God is afflicting me God is draining me of every blessing, and she's bitter. God's taken my stuff away, and, and we're not talking like you know he he took my Ferrari away. It's like my husband, you know, my my sons. I mean, this is dear. Type. Okay, now now contrast that. Then, what's the books, the narrator, the books view of God? God is in control, right? Everybody agrees. Okay. 
Yeah, she ends up in the Davidic line, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So God's my enemy. God took everything away. God's afflicting me. I'm bitter about it. Contrasted with God does care, doesn't he? God is thinking about her. He is providing for her. Maybe not in the way that she expected, but God is caring for her. And, and you're right, we get to the end of the story, and it's like he puts her in the Davidic line. Uh, now remember, when does the story take place? What does chapter 1, verse 1 say? It takes place when? In the time of the judges. What's going on in the judges? Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, and we're wondering, does, is God still with his people, or is he abandoning his people? So, so you almost get this little microcosm that, that Naomi is wrestling with in her own life, this broader theme of everybody's you know, not seeing God for who he really is. What's God going to do? And just like in the book of Judges, we see God's faithfulness, his kindness, his patience. And now we see it, that's at a macro level, now we see it at a micro level in the book of Ruth. God is not only caring and patient and kind and, and working in, in these situations, he's also remembering what? His covenant, his promise, because the book ends where? With a genealogy. There it is, right? We say, what am I supposed to get about this genealogy? Well, you're not supposed to get you know, three great things for your life that day, but what does that genealogy represent? God's goodness and kindness in keeping his covenant in the midst of his people struggling. Do you see that? Do you see how applicable this is now? And, and I, have you ever had a time in your life where you say, I feel like God's against me. I feel like I had wonderful things and he took them away. And when I feel like that, what does the book of Ruth help me to see? My feelings are wrong. They're wrong. Because that's not what God's doing. I think you've got to be real careful about saying, going too far the other direction. Mm -hmm. The kind of direction we're headed is that I love God as long as everything's going great. And when trouble comes, it's all His fault. Mm -hmm. That's right. We can't yeah. do that. Yeah. And, that, and that, that's, that's exactly the setup of why Job happens. Satan says to Job, what? Or Satan says to God, excuse me, what? Job only loves you because he's made his life great. Take it all away and he'll curse you to your face. And that, that's the theological challenge that the book of Job is designed to correct. That God is worthy of our worship, not because he makes our life great, but because he's worthy of it. So, David, I want to put you on the spot. Anything you want to add about application? I know you've thought about this and whatnot, but are we in the ballpark at least? Well, the way I read it, yeah. Mm -hmm. The only thing I would add, I think, 
Okay, so let me summarize that just so it's on the recording. So you're saying another feature is that God often provides for us, helps us through his people that have means, and it's not any less God doing it if it's normal means, my neighbor helps me, my a family helps me, in this case Boaz redeems her and her situation versus some miraculous event, right? Yeah. yeah. keep layer after layer after layer isn't there so uh, i i was embarrassed too i I think since you and i talked last um the explicit reference to uh to judah and that whole situation back in genesis and i thought oh isn't that interesting and that's a whole nut right and why do they start with perez yeah because it connects that with genesis which was not just the the leverite law part of it but also i think connecting to God's kindness in uh, the the messianic line through Judah at the end of Genesis and con- anyway, it just it's all connected, guys. It's all connected. That's why you read it over and over and over. You start seeing all these connections. So, okay, well we're out of time. I was going to another example, but that gives you a good one because I know you've you've had good uh, teaching on Ruth. So, okay, so uh, your mission should you choose to accept it this week, um, you'll notice. Just stay with me one more minute. This book does not have a great section on application. It's okay. And in fact, I think one of the great weaknesses of this book comes in that section, particularly as it's talking about uh, the Holy Spirit's role and some other things. Uh, If you're familiar with... You guys ever heard the term Lectio Divina? Lectio Divina, have you heard that? Uh, it's It's an old mystic Catholic practice that uh, would not be something that we would deem to be faithful in terms of how we read and apply Scripture. And uh, these folks are comfortable with a more evangelical version. I disagree. But regardless, just be, be aware of that. The application section is not a feature of the book. Many of you probably have this book, though, called Living by the Book by Hendricks. And it's in our library if you want to borrow it. The section on application in this book is is much stronger. So this is, this was this was one of the recommended books for the course, and the reason it's in the recommended is because the application section is really good. So if you want to get that, great. You certainly don't have to, but just know if you want to read more about application, living by the book is a much better uh, option. 
So your assignment is 13-3 in Grasping God's Word, and that's going to get you into application on page 247 there. Alrighty, well, let me pray and I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your kindness. Uh, we, see, we have seen in Exodus, we've seen in Nahum, we've seen in Ruth, uh, just how incredibly kind and good and patient and faithful you are, even to us, to, to your people, especially when we walk in sin and when we live in rejection of your word even. Lord, I pray as we, we get to the uh, the real point of why we are wanting to read and, and interpret scripture in a more faithful way is to be able to know you more and to be able to be more like you. So help us with application. Uh, help us to never walk away from our Bibles or a sermon or a, a podcast or whatever it is without meditating on what we've learned with a view toward applying and, and putting into our life what we've learned about. Uh, Lord, make us more like you and, and make us to grow closer to you. And we thank you again for your word that uh, accomplishes those two things as we would draw near to you in it. Uh, we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for what you're doing in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.